you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Millions of federal funds are waiting to be tapped to boost broadband, internet, and the information highway in the islands. Lieutenant Governor and former State House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke is a designated troubleshooter to make sure the state doesn't bungle the opportunity to connect our communities online. We heard from State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen yesterday about how it's looking to work with the many other agencies that have broadband funds to spend. We talked to the Lieutenant Governor recently about the push for preschool education and broadband, the two initiatives she is spearheading. Lieutenant Governor Luke agrees there will be logistical challenges. That's why, you know, we need an overall plan of how to use funds because we don't want different departments working in silos so that the efforts become duplicative. So let me explain. Say that Department of Transportation wants to expand broadband access working through the traffic lines. But at the same time, if the libraries are also trying to ramp up broadband services, in their libraries. Maybe those things could be coordinated as opposed to the libraries just working within the library properties and then Department of Transportation, you know, not aligning where the traffic lines are. So it's a lot of coordinating and trying to figure out, okay, how do these lines connect and then how do we maximize the funds? Well, you know, I think we learned so much during this pandemic, you know, about our vulnerabilities and, you know, what we need to strengthen. When we did talk with Ed Sniffen, you know, at DOT, you know, about some of the broadband ideas, I think it was in Kau, they had a project down uh, on the Big Island, you know, down south, about, you know, how to bring that capacity to some of those rural areas, because you need to serve those communities. Exactly. And the last two years have shown that broadband is essential and it's almost a necessity for many people. It wasn't just about remote learning, it wasn't about remote working, but now, you know, if you want to look at healthcare access, you know, even making sure that information is traveled and even economic development, it touches so many things. But because Hawaii is out here in the Pacific, we have to make sure that we're connected to the world. And if we lose that connectivity, then we don't give the same type of opportunities and challenges for our working folks and, you know, our younger generations, too. And there's a lot of monies available on the federal side that we could try to grab. And part of my duty is to work with different departments to maximize what we can get as far as broadband funding. Do you think there's going to be any issues, you know, with procurement? UH has their own procurement system, you know, and in, in some instances, maybe it, it may make sense for UH to take the lead on some of these things, whether it's broadband or, you know, the preschool uh, aspect. Uh, I don't know, your thoughts on that? I think even if UH has somewhat of a procurement flexibility, they still try to abide by the current procurement rules. And procurement is there for the protection of the public so that one group of businesses don't get all the awards. But at the same time, I know procurement has led to delays. It also had people raise questions about whether procurement results in best product. I think we still need to work under our procurement laws to make sure that we ensure public trust and we ensure accountability, but there are ways you can craft procurement so that we get a good product. Part of it is just managing and uh, making sure that you have eyes on it from the time that you give out the contract until it's done. And you just got to have good project management team to oversee and track and track where the money is going, how it's spent and question all along the way. And with these federal funds, uh, you know, there are some that have deadlines attached uh, to spending, Correct. right? Can you talk about that? I mean, I know there was the concern recently about how much money DHHL could spend and whether, you know, that had to be in balance with what we spend with education. Right. When the Department of Education requested federal relief monies, they were bound to what's known as MOE. It's a maintenance of effort and kind of in lay terms is whatever the state spends for non-DOE purposes, then a proportionate amount has to be spent for DOE. So say that, you know, in a, a Hawaiian homeland situation, we gave $600 million to CHHL 
to address the wait list. Because we gave a large infusion, we have to give an equivalent or around 20% equivalent in increase to the Department of Education. What happened last year was that we did that. So that's why we substantially increased the Department of Education budget. So this year when they're talking about, oh, we can't spend because of Department of Education, it's somewhat of a red herring argument because mm. when we gave an increased amount to Department of Hawaiian Homelands or affordable housing or even pre-K, we made sure that we gave that proportionate increase amount to the Department of Education. And so what Department of Education has to do is spend that money. And Department of Education, as some people in the community have said that, you know, it's always underfunded. Well, last year they had a significant amount of money given to the Department of Education because of this internal agreement we had with the, the federal government. The federal government said, if you're going to take federal relief money to basically cover you during the economic downfall. We don't want that at the risk of losing educational funds. So they, that's why they said, we don't want you to take federal relief money and supplant it and then relieve yourselves of giving education what they need. So that's mm. why they put this proportionate requirement. I hope that clarifies kind of that confusing yeah, it, thing. Yeah, it is interesting. Just, yeah, just because you're you're wondering, well, you know, what does that mean, and and uh, yeah. and and can the DOE maybe a windfall? But you know, is the structure in place for them to encumber those funds on projects? All they have to do is encumber, and not only that, they have until December of 2024 to spend the funding. So as you can see, the federal government gave some latitude in the spending, and I know there's some discussion on the federal side about loosening some of these restrictions, but at least on the state side, both myself and Chair De La Cruz, who was my counterpart, mm-hmm. made sure that the state agencies will not be penalized because of this federal requirement. And we needed the Department of Education substantially more money because of funding, large amount of funding that went to DHHL, affordable housing and preschool. I think the broadband funding will be very complicated. This Ready Keiki initiative, the early learning and preschool expansion program, that in itself was very complex because you had to almost pool many different sectors, many agencies together, but it, it pales in comparison to what we have to do in broadband. In 2019, the connection between Kauai and the rest of the state was cut. So there were people on Kauai that didn't have any internet service for almost a day. That got fixed. So when you think about that, and if if that happened during the pandemic or if that happened while we're at work and even right now, I think that would have economic, educational, health devastation. And that's what we're trying to avoid and making sure that we have resiliency and we make sure that people have access to reliable, affordable broadband service. I think once we put this in place, this will be a service that will be important to the entire population. And this is complicated, but important enough that it takes, you know, people wanting to work in this issue and try to get it resolved. Do you think there'll be a need to tweak uh, anything in regard to the broadband spending this session? There will be needs. So all the broadband monies, it's not grant by the federal government. Some of it has matching funds. Some of it Mm. we have to put a plan together. And if the plan is good enough, then the federal government will give us the funding. So kind of as an example, DHHL, Department of Hawaiian Homeland, the potential total amount that the Department of Hawaiian Homelands could get from the federal government was $90 million. But because of the the plan that was submitted, the federal government only provided $17 million. So that gives us kind of a, kind of a wake-up call to say, when we are dealing with broadband funding, 
we have to take everything seriously and we have to make sure that we have to justify what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're going to spend the money. And every step makes a huge difference in future funding. And that's why, you know, I'm happy to be working with DHHL to ensure that we try to grab as much federal funds as we can and put out a good plan, put out solid effort that will lead to other funding. So last year, we were able to match what we got in federal relief funds to match $150 million of broadband funding. Unfortunately, the last administration decided to use the $33 million of matching to pay for HTA. And so because of that, this year we have to go and re-ask for the matching fund in general fund. Such is the complex broadband funding landscape that Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke is tasked with overseeing, one of the top issues to watch under this new administration. Support local news coverage on HPR. Navy officials have announced they will open a clinic to address health issues possibly associated with jet fuel exposure. What we want to happen is for people to come in, find out what's happening to them, and work them up thoroughly so that there is a connection we can pursue it. Meanwhile, we'll be working very closely with the Department of Health and EPA to get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. It's with the Department of Health and they're reviewing it. Once that's approved, we're going to do iterative planning in partnership with the Department of Health and the EPA to find ways to move the timeline left. First, there's a technical, engineering, methodical, and deliberate removal of the fuel. And the other is active listening, compassionate, and empathetic conversations with our military families and the community. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our housing and homeless crisis has been a priority for lawmakers in recent years. Today, HBR's Casey Harlow uh, joins us to talk more about what's on tap this session. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, a couple uh, days ago, the housing chairs for the Senate and uh, House uh, outlined some of their priorities for the upcoming session. And a lot of it, obviously, is we need to build more units. We need to build more affordable housing. We need, and how can we get that done? And we're thousands of units short still. Yes. Uh, so, 2019 study from the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation uh, estimated or projected that we the state would need to build 50,000 units between 2020 and 2025. That's a lot of units. Well, it's 2023, and I don't think we've gotten that far ahead. Uh, According to Senator Stanley Chang, who's the uh, chair for the Senate Housing Committee, uh, he estimated that roughly 2,000 units were built a year under the EGA administration, and he would like to increase that pipeline to 10,000 units a year. And that number is based on uh, several factors, such as uh, birth rates, uh, population growth, uh, current demand for units, and the projected uh, need for those units as well. My overarching focus in this session, as in previous sessions, is to get to that 10,000 units a year. And the two biggest barriers to getting to those 10,000 units a year are land and money. So um, what I'm really trying to do is trying to minimize the number of acres per unit and the number of dollars per unit that it will take to generate 10,000 units a year. And I know 10,000 units sounds like a lot, but you know, 10,000 units is only about 3% of the housing stock on Oahu alone. And so he aims to uh, do this through several overall topics, you know, such as preparing state lands for housing density. If you've been following uh, Senator Chang's uh, initiatives uh, so far, he always promoted the Singapore model where, you know, it's very dense, but a lot of housing uh, on small uh, acres of land, small parcels of land. Uh, he also uh, 
is going to propose reorganizing uh, state organizations and state departments, such as, you know, merging HHFDC with the Hawaii Community Development Authority, with the Office of Planning a Sustainable Development and the Public Housing Authority together so that uh, Nani uh, Medeiros, who is Governor Green's new housing director, will oversee all that, uh, kind of hoping to streamline everything. Also, he wants to look at, you know, how the state finances some of these development projects. Another which he uh, had on a slide called Unleashing the Private Sector. Uh, this plan includes bills that supersede some county rules, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, maybe proximity to uh, the rail line and kind of um, to bypass certain uh, reviews or to bypass certain uh, roadblocks uh, in the pre-development phase. Another is to rework certain other programs, such as that 201H program, which uh, is a state program, straight state grant to help fund affordable housing uh, developments. And under this law, uh, about only half of the units uh, for a 201H project goes to affordable, uh, while the others could be uh, market rate. And so this is uh, Senator Chang kind of clarifying a little bit more on that. What I would do is I would give the an alternative avenue to the incredible powers of 201H by requiring that all the units be sold to Hawaii residents who be owner occupants and own no other real property. SB 867 would get rid of inclusionary zoning for units for projects that are only for Hawaii residents, owner occupants, and who own no other real property. Currently, the city and county of Honolulu requires you know inclusionary zoning for pretty much every project that has 10 units or more in on this island. SB 874 is another one. School impact fees are something that the DOE charges that can be very onerous for developers. And so we would get rid of that requirement for projects that would be for Hawaii residents, owner occupants, who own no other real property. Interesting. Yeah. And another thing that really uh, caught my uh, eye is that he also is proposing uh, having OPSD, which is the Office of Planning and Sustainable Development, uh, create an inventory of state parcels throughout uh, the state uh, for to be identified for possible housing projects. And so if maybe a community uh, comes out against it saying it's not, you know, right to have this project here, then that inventory would then go to the executive branch, and the executive branch could make the ultimate call of saying, well, no, we've actually looked throughout the state, and this is actually perfect for this type of housing project. So kind of combating that not in my backyard uh, mentality or kind of uh, that nimbyism in a way. Also, you know, Representative Troy Hashimoto on the House side of things, uh, he wants to continue a lot of uh, the funding of programs such as Ohana Zones, which I think is going to be slated uh, to end its funding later this year, and also continue rental relief uh, programs for low-income residents and Kupuna. But also a big thing is infrastructure. We always hear about infrastructure uh, time and time again with these developments, and he wants to address that as well. In order for us to be successful, we need to identify those critical infrastructure investments. Um, and it's a partnership between the state and the county because at the end of the day, a lot of the infrastructure investments that we make will ultimately be run by the county. So if we don't have partnerships with them, it's either the state's gonna have to take on that infrastructure investment or you know, the counties won't accept it, and that's no good for anyone. We know that large-scale development will happen on Honolulu's rail line. That's a big TOD discussions in the planning phases. We know that's ripe for a lot of density, but the biggest problem with to TOD development is sewer capacity, it's infrastructure. Yep, wastewater, that's exactly. the problem. Yep, and so all these things will be uh, up for discussion in this session. Okay, all right, well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow about the housing proposals that state lawmakers will be taking up this session. Look for stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Blaze Lovell on the line with us this morning. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, Catherine. Hey, so I understand that the Chief Justice uh, talked to lawmakers yesterday. Yep, the governor got his chance on Monday, and yesterday Chief Justice Mark Rechtenwald addressed 
the Hawaii legislature and the Senate chambers. Uh, he, he compared, you know, the looming problems of Hawaii's homelessness issues and mental health crisis to the big waves that uh, crashed on the North Shore earlier during the eddy this week. And Clyde Aikau was actually in the audience listening to it. And Rechtenwald devoted a lot of his speech to advocating for more funding for diversionary programs to actually keep people away from the criminal justice system and into different treatment centers or different treatment programs, um, uh, you know, different programs that would take uh, chronically homeless individuals or those experiencing a mental health crisis, you know, instead of slapping them with crimes, sending them to court and then to jail, uh, you, you put them through these various community programs that uh, hopefully gets them some treatment. And although the, not all of this are things that the judiciary runs, and Rechtenwald acknowledges that, he says a lot of it has to do with the Department of Health and the counties. He felt it was uh, necessary to bring that up because he wants the state working together to solve these issues. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, just the tone, right, that that uh, I think Governor Green set uh, uh, the state of the state about reaching across, uh, you know, the, uh, the different branches, right, to work Let's work together on these issues. Right. He wants to break down silos, and it, you know, it's apparent the Chief Justice wants to do the same thing with lawmakers as well. Yeah, and so in his state of the state, uh, or state of the judiciary, I should say, um, you know, he's highlighted, you know, some of the things that, uh, I guess, some of the, the, the positives that the judiciary has been able to, um, to, to make, you know, during the pandemic. Um, but there's just a lot of work to do still. Right. A lot of cases were delayed, and the, he told me they still are being delayed. Um, a lot of it has to do with the switchover to this new system that they're using. You know, uh, they're starting to incorporate a lot more uh, uh, Zoom type of uh, um, meetings into their courtrooms and uh, teleconferencing to sort of get more people online. They're now making electronic filing for court users available 24-7 so that people can upload documents every time. And the Supreme Court now is even live streaming and archiving all of their oral arguments on YouTube. So there's some major changes coming, but, you, you know, Mark Rechtenwald, he, he wants more. Um, he wants the state to do more, and he wants to see the judiciary doing more. Specifically, you know, he highlighted this women's court pilot program that's set to get kicked off. Uh, this week, actually, I think uh, they've accepted about 20 women into the program. The idea is to target uh, women, specifically um, young mothers, and instead of sending them, you know, to jail, they they get into this program and uh, you know try to get better. Yeah, uh, and as far as funding, is he asking for a lot uh, in his budget? In the grand scheme of things, it's not much. I think the judiciary's budget makes up about two percent of the state's budget. Uh, he's asking for a couple of things. One is 30 positions that were defunded during the pandemic, and this is a wide spectrum of employees. Yeah. But he pointed out that you know they need more probation officers. So when those positions were defunded, the existing workload ended up on other probation officers. He also said that some of those positions that were defunded were a lot of court staff. He pointed to a counter on the Big Island that has had to close early because they just lacked the personnel necessary to staff it. And without the funding for those positions have had to move the money around, and it means that they couldn't fill other positions that they believe are necessary. Uh, Reckonwald told me that you know they can absorb this in the short short term, but in the long term, it's going to have a big impact. And I think they're asking for about two point three million dollars for that. They also want another quote unquote rural court judge on Oahu to sort of handle the courts in Kaneohe Pro City. Kapolei and Wahiwa. Right now, they have a rotating list of uh, judges that manage those. They want one person dedicated to oversee all of that. And the judge and staff is expected to cost about $360,000 a year. Right. So the whole question is, yeah, the workers, right? You need to get people uh, in in those areas, uh, you know, where they're needed, where the demand is, and, and to fill these uh, uh, judgeships. Right. And Senator Carl Rhodes, he's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He, he believes they'll get at least some of the funding, you know, in the broad scheme of things. Uh, over $9 billion budget in the state, what the judiciary is asking for isn't much. And your article talks about uh, the vacancies that we're going to be seeing on the Supreme Court. 
Right. Uh, during Green's term, uh, three justices are going to be retiring, including Mark Rechtenwald, who spoke yesterday. And so uh, Governor Josh Green is going to get three court picks, and he'll also get to pick the new Supreme Court justice, which will mark a dramatic you know, possible turn in how the court decides cases here. Okay. All right. Lots of changes ahead. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. Uh, you can read his story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UHA Health Insurance, celebrating 25 years, offering Hawaii employers medical, drug, and vision plans. Learn more at uhahealth.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Ellen Meredith, author of Your Body Will Show You the Way. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about energy medicine for personal and global change. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Local organizations, big and small, are banding together to curb uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The Hawaii Executive Collaborative has formed a new climate coalition. It consists of businesses, nonprofits, educational institutions, and all four Hawaii counties. There's the usual players, Blue Planet Foundation and Elemental Accelerator, but there's also companies with a more complicated climate legacy, like Par Hawaii. Alaska Airlines, and Alexander and Baldwin. These coalition members have pledged to track and reduce their carbon emissions and make that information available to each other and the public. But what will make this climate pledge stick? HBR Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Jeff Michelina, the former head of the Blue Planet Foundation and a member of the coalition, and Chris Benjamin, CEO of Alexander and Baldwin and coalition chair. Benjamin says that close collaboration will keep member organizations on track. Accountability and, and transparency in the corporate world around everything ESG-related, environmental, social, and governance, is becoming more and more critical and more and more prevalent. I think that that transparency is very important to us, not as much from a policing standpoint, although there is that element eventually that you you do need to have a degree of enforcement down the road. But I think just as much it's about awareness and even finding out where you as an organization are. I think by creating these uh, these goals to have measurement and have visibility, uh, it it creates, for some, it's the first time they've ever even looked at these numbers. And, and that can be a very powerful part in the process. Um, and then also it creates some of that, I guess, peer pressure that Jeff is, is referring to. Now, in terms of uh, specifics around uh, transparency and how and where it will be reported. I don't know, Jeff, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, because it's very important, right? People can sign this pledge and put it on the shelf and forget about it. So we definitely want to make sure we have a platform where there's sharing, not just for that kind of accountability and transparency, but also so organizations can learn from other organizations. We hope not only they are going to you know disclose their carbon inventory and how that's changing year over year, but their commitments. Are they going to commit to you know, net zero by 2030 or some percentage? Uh, and then the actions that they're taking. So groups can actually learn from other groups that, oh, you changed to biodiesel and you put in some photovoltaic and then did some efficiency and now your emissions are half that, what they were. So that, that sharing, we think, is really important. Um, along with just kind of building trust and, and encouraging others that we're all, we're all in this together, we're all taking action. 
Um, so we're not sure the final form, but I'm sure it'll be some sort of a, a website or, or platform where, where people can see different organizations, what they've pledged to do, what their current emissions are. And I, I do think there's an effect. I was meeting with an organization yesterday that hadn't really thought about this too much, and they had a lot of questions of where to start. But through it, they found that just by, there's that Hawthorne effect, just by observing something, it changes. And I think there's a bit of that, because now there's a conversation happening at the organization. They set up a committee to talk about climate, and they're starting to do their first inventory. And just that alone is, is progress. Well, all this emissions data and other data as it relates to climate change and the goal of the, the Climate Coalition be self-reported? That, that's the current plan, yep. Mm-hmm. I do think it's worth reflecting on the fact that this is... Uh, it's a very optimistic time from the standpoint of some of this collaboration. Of course, new administration, largely new legislature, that is important. Um, an unusual situation of having some budget surplus to do some things with that we couldn't normally do. And I think also, and this is this is both sad and, and happy news, is I think the recognition of the imperative on climate has never been greater. And it's because of the things we see in the news and the weather and the the weather events that we're having. So I think that, that we're well past the do we need to do something and it's more about what do we do it what do we do and how do we do it together. And so I'm optimistic that this is a, a, a critical turning point in the discussion around climate. What was exciting to me about reading the Climate Pledge was the diversity of different organizations that have signed on. You have, of course, Blue Planet Foundation, a organization that has been active in the space of climate for many years. But you also have, for instance, Par Hawaii, as well as Alaska Airlines, both organizations that have deep ties to fossil fuels just by the nature of their business. Why weren't we seeing a coming together of different organizations like this 10 years ago? Yeah, I would say I think that the landscape has really shifted and awareness, as Chris shared, has really, really grown with climate, not just because we see the headlines, but um, there's a younger generation coming up, too, that's really driving the conversation. So from my perspective, I think businesses are seeing the, the imperative just as being good citizens, also from a marketing angle as well. Um, and just the need. I mean, if you're going to be a, a, a good citizen operating in the 2020s, then this is part of your part of your role. Yeah, and I think that there is a very clear understanding on the part of business of the importance of you know. There's always been an, an understanding of giving back to the community, but I think now there's even greater uh, awareness of our need to sustain the planet and to be taking actions that help us do that. I think. Peter Ingram would be very open about the fact that he is a significant fossil fuel user and the future success of his business depends on him finding more renewable fuel sources. He's he's crystal clear about that. And so he wants to be at the table and his team has been at the table since day one. Um, similarly, businesses like PAR, um, Alaska, uh, others, they understand that a very intensely focused fossil fuel-based business has got to find you know, more renewable solutions, and so they want to be at the table. Let's stay with you for a moment, Chris, and, and think of that perspective shifting as it pertains to your own role as CEO of Alexander and Baldwin. What do you think Alexander and Baldwin's legacy has been in Hawaii in terms of conservation and climate change, and what do you hope its legacy will be in the future? Well, I think our legacy is complicated. I, I think there, there are many things that I'm extremely proud of that A&B has done for over 100 years. We, we developed the first hydroelectric plant in Hawaii in 1906. We've been producing a, a renewable energy for you know over 115 years. Um, at the same time, our agricultural practices are not entirely popular with respect to the environment. Watershed protection, though, has always been important to us. We were a founding member of the East Maui and Kauai watershed partnerships. And so it, it's a complicated history because I think we've been good environmental stewards, but we've also been involved in businesses that have not been entirely environmentally friendly. As we move forward, we are now purely a commercial real estate company. And so what I have said to our team for many years now is that we have to define our legacy, not our, I, we have to define our environmental activity and stewardship in the context of the business we're in now. We can't rest on the laurels of having created a, a hydroelectric plant 115 years ago. 
we have to focus on what do our shopping centers, our industrial properties contribute to the, the, the climate landscape. We just installed a 1.3 megawatt solar farm on uh, uh, array on the top of Pearl Highland Shopping Center. We've got to look at lighting efficiency and water uh, consumption reduction. We've got to focus on these things because whatever the history of A&B is, and I'm extremely proud of it, and I believe that A&B has been a great steward of, of land over time, um, what matters now is our current business model and how we are stewarding the environment within that, that current business model. And I think we're doing a lot of great things. We've, we've done a lot of great things, and we have a lot more initiatives, including a, additional PV projects on the horizon. I appreciate what, what Chris was very realistically reflecting on his own company. Um, and it, it, at the Climate Coalition, we're, we're really looking forward. We're, we're all in this tiny spaceship together, and we're going to take inventory and see how we can move together as fast as possible. You have talked about the urgency of this moment, and I appreciate that the Climate Coalition is trying to capitalize on that, to keep everyone on board, to look forward in order to do what we need to do. However, climate equity has become a tentpole of the climate action movement, and people who advocate for climate equity say, hey, it's not enough to just look forward. We need to look back at what organizations have done to bring us to this point. And there are organizations in the Climate Coalition with a complicated legacy, Alexander and Baldwin among them. Is climate equity going to be one of the principles that this Climate Coalition explores? I'm happy to answer that, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is essential. And what we've often said is, you know, our journey to 100% requires 100%. We all need to go together um, on this journey. And, and what's exciting is so many of these solutions are going to help local folks. They're going to help folks who otherwise, you know, haven't been able to benefit from re renewable energy. We're finally seeing some of the first community renew uh, renewable projects come out. The Molokai projects are really exciting to see. Um, and then so much is happening with uh, Hawaii's Green Bank, which is a, a real success story and, and a big opportunity with federal funding. So we have more resources to help uh, low to moderate income folks um, participate, again, in the benefits of clean energy. So there is a line in our pledge. We want to spotlight it and make it, make it clear that we're not just you know, full speed ahead on renewable solutions, but we all have to go together. So there's a commitment to equity, um, particularly looking at, you know, Hawaii Community Foundation's change framework and how we can incorporate our efforts in, in that, um, that effort uh, and make sure that everyone is, uh, is benefiting through this transition. But, but something that I think is very important to the Climate Coalition. Hmm. Chris, anything you'd like to add on the point about climate equity? You know, I think I, I want to give a shout out to Chip Fletcher and also some of the other members of the coalition who have really done a great job of bringing a voice to the issue of equity in, in climate work. Um, Chip is a huge advocate of this. We've got others. We've got a number of people from um, the local community, Native Hawaiian community, who are focused on making sure that we are both uh, thinking about equity in our solutions, but also embracing uh, indigenous values and ways that for so long did lead to, um, you know, a good balance with nature. And many of them have um, not been emphasized sufficiently um, in recent years, and we need to get back to some of those. Mm, mm. What does that mean for your work and in the kind of two hats that you wear, chair of this climate coalition and then CEO of Alexander and Baldwin? I think that's something I'm still figuring out. but. The foundation of my approach to work and A&B is a, a tagline that we adopted about six years ago, which is Partners for Hawaii. That everything we do at A&B, we're trying to do with a view towards how we can partner with the local community and do right by the local community. And that is a tagline that I think guided us through the pandemic. I think it's guiding us through a lot of our climate-related work a lot of our community-based work now. With respect to the coalition itself, um, I, I think it starts with what Dwayne Carisu has created with the Hawaii Executive Collaborative, which is everybody coming together to put the at the top of the agenda Hawaii's future and secondary their own individual and corporate objectives. It's about figuring out how do we create more housing more 
educational opportunities, a better environment for Hawaii's people, and utilize our resources, both individual and corporate and organizational, to facilitate that rather than what do we do for the benefit of our organizations. It's how can our organizations benefit our goals. Mm. Thank you both for coming in today. I do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Savannah. Thanks. That was HPR Savannah Harriman Poe talking with Chris Benjamin, CEO of Alexander and Baldwin, and climate advocate Jeff Mikulina. Uh, they're members of the Hawaii Executive Collaborative's new climate coalition. Uh, in A&B's 2021 corporate report, it calculated its total annual emissions at just under 59,000 metric tons. The group is pledging to track and reduce its carbon emissions. telling pediatricians in very definitive language, when they have a child who has obesity, you have to be aggressive. You have to take action now. And it is a response to a new understanding of what obesity is and what to do about it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. This Friday, Hawaii Public Radio brings you a very special Road Stories episode you don't want to miss. Considering what I've been through, I don't feel that bad. Aloha, I'm Dave Lawrence, and this Friday, we're welcoming Ozzy Osbourne. He's up for four Grammys for his new Patient Number 9 album. We'll hear about his battle with Parkinson's disease, unusual home in England, and much more. On All Things Considered, this Friday afternoon, starting at 4, our special guest, Ozzy Osbourne, on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Hapa Symphony Series, presenting an evening of melee with traditional Hawaiian music band Keaho, performing February 4th at Hawaii Theater. Tickets at myhso.org. up in New York City, Derek Brown remembers learning about African-American writer Paul Lawrence Dunbar from his parents. He knew there were some 60 high schools across the country named after the poet and playwright, but he really didn't appreciate the depth of his work until he got involved in directing last year's tag show about Dunbar. Brown immersed himself in, in his work and is resolved to read all of his poetry and short stories. Brown, along with a longtime uh, tag member, Francis Enos, just debuted the first of two theater productions about Dunbar this weekend. The first is titled The Poet and His Song, and the second is a musical review of jazz and blues from his time. We sat down with Brown and actress Cervelle uh, Burgos, who's involved with both shows. We start with Brown. It's just amazing considering, you know, his time as a author or writer was very short. And so his body of work is just amazing that he was able to, uh, you know, have so many really, you know, poignant pieces of work as it related to, as it relates to our struggle here since its inception. So, so. And talk about your experience with Paul Dunbar. So just to expound on what Derek was saying a little bit about what this is as far as whether it's a play or whatever it, it in my uh, from my point of view Frankie does something really really clever in that she uses the poems as a vehicle to tell his story not just a story but his story so she's able to present his life in a way that features his poetry which is really to me it speaks to how prolific his writing is because it addresses so many different facets of life and specifically black life. Paul Dunbar in the play, you know, our, our character who plays Paul Dunbar speaks to the fact that he liked to write in formal English, but also he wrote in dialect so that our people would have a way 
to to express themselves and the things that they were going through in a way that they understood and and so to me that's that speaks to how prolific Paul Dunbar really is in his in his body of work really is I learned about him in high school you know I grew up in Alabama and the town that I grew up in was was the first all-black incorporated town in the United States and so I have this knowledge this working knowledge of you know some of our figures in in history however being in this play and working with Derek and working with Frankie and all of them, it, it's given me an opportunity to learn more an opportunity to become really acquainted with his work because everybody knows I know why Cage Bird sings everybody knows that but few people really understand the meaning behind that poem few people understand just like I said just how prolific his work is and so being in the play has helped me to gain a fuller understanding of Paul Dunbar and his contribution to literature as a whole not just black literature but literature as a whole and you also had an idea to do a second show last year when when we first did this this uh, Paul Dunbar um I think the idea, original idea was that, like it was just going to be like a poetry reading and then we were like, no, th- this could be so much more and then it turned into so much more and then this year the evolution keeps going and so I approached Frankie and, and Derek and Brad and all of them and said, you know, can we make this sort of a celebration and not just, you know, just based on his poetry but also talk about how he influenced other areas of life other areas of art I see a lot of writers and plays who mention you know they just put in a little mention of Paul Dunbar here and Paul Dunbar there but I really wanted to focus on the Harlem Renaissance and how so many artists Langston Hughes Zora Neale Hurston all these people were influenced by Paul Dunbar's works you know influenced by all the things that he did to get the door open for them. So the musical review is is a fictional story, but I use songs from, like I said, the Harlem Renaissance to to kind of illustrate how Paul Dunbar influenced art going forward, black literature and music going forward. And Derek, you know, I just learned about Paul Dunbar, you know, recently after, you know, the production last year, and I just was so flabbergasted at the work and how powerful, you know, the things that I was able to read, you know, and I love short stories. (laughs) So when you think about Paul Dunbar now, you know, during Black History Month, and, and, and you know, like, how many people just may not know the depth of his work, I mean... I don't know. How, how would you explain to somebody what these productions mean and what you're trying to get across to folks? Uh, unfortunately, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is not an everyday name when we talk about great poets or great literature, and it should be. So I guess first and foremost is just to let a lot of people who don't know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is know who he is, what he was about, what made him so special, why he was a prolific writer. One of the things that I think about when we talk about Paul Lawrence Dunbar is the struggle that he had to go through as a man during the time that he lived, trying to make it in an art form that he wasn't supposed to be able to contribute anything good to. Being able to write both ways, in, in standard and in dialect, both of which he loved, understanding his responsibility to his people in dialect so that mm-hmm. they could understand, but wanted to be spoke of in the same sentences as the greats, the great American, because this is who this man was, was an American. A brilliant man who, because of the stresses of the time, had a lot that he had to deal with. So when we talk about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and of course my ladies made me understand this. He drank heavily. He was an abusive man to his wife. Amongst many other problems that that he probably had at the time, but just trying to understand what it must be like to live in a place where you had to get off the sidewalk if a white woman walked by you. And you're trying to break into this thing that is heavily guarded like golf. You know, you're not supposed to be here because this represents a certain intellect that you're not supposed to have and that we don't want to recognize it, even if you do have it. So there's a lot. But basically, when you when you talk about what do I want, I want people to know who he is. I want people to know the struggles that he had to go through, recognizing the time, the period of time in our history, 
recognize the amount of work that he did in the short period of time and recognize his brilliance because he was a brilliant writer. Yeah, so we celebrate his gift and that the, the literature still stands today as a body of work that expresses that deep emotion that African Americans have as a part of our history of, of the United States. And having said that, I just want to ask you one thing on a personal note. Have you, do you know, have you ever heard of the poem, The Caged Bird? Yes. Okay, so then you're familiar with it, and I'll be so happy when you come to the show because I want you to see the interpretation. Knowing what the poem means, I just want you to see the interpretation that Chevelle gives when she does it, and I'll talk to you about it after when you come to the show. Okay, well, now, do you want to tease our listeners? I don't know. Can you just do something extemporaneously? Go ahead, girl. Go get him. Go get him. I know why the caged bird sings, alas. When the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass, when the river flows like a stream of glass, when the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from his chalice steals, I know what the caged bird feels. The power of the written word, the power of the spoken word. That was Chevelle Burgos and Derek Brown talking about two different productions that TAG, the actors group, is putting on to honor poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The poet in a song is one, and the second is a musical review. The TAG theater uh, location is at the Honolulu uh, Honolulu's Dole Cannery. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. I will roll it in the sand. It will look alone. I love that coming, but I know a change is gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's meant to call a living, but I'm afraid, yeah. Well, that is it for us today. Up tomorrow, the Deputy Secretary for the Navy is stopping off in Honolulu after a visit from the bases in Guam. She's going to join us in studio. Got questions for her? Call her Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation 